Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Dr. Bill Petrie. As our introduction states, this podcast seeks to focus on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Today, I want to focus on how the vast majority of Christendom has deviated from sound Bible teaching. I begin by asking two questions. What is the church and when did it begin? The answer to the second question will depend upon the answer to the first. There are seven key passages in the New Testament that describe the church. They are the following passages. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 through 13, Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, and Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. These passages provide the needed information to answer those two questions that I asked a few moments ago. The traditional and majority view of Christianity is that the church, the body of Christ, began on Pentecost. Differing things rejects this view. We believe that this is unsound Bible teaching that deviates from the Bible. There is a line of argument for the traditional view, and they have six points to it. The first point would be the church is the body of Christ. And they would look at the same verses that I just stated. Their second point, membership into the body of Christ is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they would quote 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, and Galatians 3, verse 27. The third point, the church was future from Christ's pre-cross ministry, according to Matthew 16, 18. Their fourth point would be the church was future from Christ's pre-ascension ministry, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Their fifth point, the church was born on the day of Pentecost with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And the last point, after Pentecost, the term Ecclesia, which had occurred previously only in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, becomes common. In Acts, it's mentioned 23 times, and 115 times outside of the Matthew passages. The logic for the traditional view is the following. The church is the body of Christ. Membership into the body of Christ is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred at Pentecost. Therefore, the church began at Pentecost. The logic of this argument seems well-reasoned and appears strong. However, when other scriptural data are considered, the traditional view collapses. Three major problems exist for the traditional view. The first is God explicitly stated through the Apostle Paul that the church, the body of Christ, was a secret the Greek word musteira. This presents a serious problem for the traditional view because Paul made this declaration long after Pentecost. The second problem confirms the first point. No biblical evidence exists to support the view that anyone at Pentecost recognized that the church, the body of Christ, had come into existence. On the contrary, The scriptural evidence indicates at Pentecost that the 12 apostles knew nothing about the body of Christ. Peter only addressed Jews. 
But Paul declared the church was that organism in which Jew and Gentile are equal. Peter obviously did not know this, else he would have addressed Gentiles. Furthermore, only Paul wrote about the body of Christ. We see this from passages such as Romans chapter 12, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, and 18, and 25 and 27, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, and so on. Such terminology is absent from the Gospels and the letters of Peter, James, John, and Jude. Lastly, Peter and the other 11 were looking for the fulfillment of prophecy. The kingdom of God on earth, which God had revealed through the prophets, not the beginning of a new church age. The Old Testament contains not a word about the church, the body of Christ. The prophets, John and Jesus, had revealed nothing of the fact that Jew and Gentile would be equal in Christ in a body. On the contrary, Peter quoted Joel and expected the sun to be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, according to Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Peter expected the Lord to come in judgment and to establish his kingdom. The logical argument for rejecting the traditional view that the church began on Pentecost is the following. Paul stated the church, the body of Christ, was a secret. This means that the church, as the body of Christ, was, was an unknown entity. Paul declared this long after Pentecost. Nothing from the record at Pentecost indicates the Twelve knew anything about the body of Christ. Peter and the other disciples knew only about the coming earthly kingdom of God. They knew nothing of Jew and Gentile becoming equal in the body of Christ seated in the celestials, with celestial citizenship, according to Ephesians 1.3, Philippians 3.20, and Colossians 1.5. Therefore, it is impossible for the body of Christ to have begun at Pentecost. Before proceeding further, we should examine the Greek word ecclesia. Whenever a word is used in the scriptures, its use must be examined in its context. Just because the same word is used does not ensure that it always has the same meaning. A careful examination of the scriptures reveals that when Jesus and the Twelve used the word ecclesia, it referred to a group of Jews who believed Jesus was the promised Messiah. When Paul used the term, however, it meant the body of Christ equality of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, the word ecclesia is usually translated in most translations as church, but it is also translated as assembly or congregation. These were the common translations in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew word most often translated into ecclesia is Kahal, which is usually rendered as assembly or congregation. A good example of this sense is found in Acts 19, verses 32, 39, and 41. When Paul went to Ephesus, he aroused the anger of the silversmiths and other tradesmen who's, who were in the idle business. One of the silversmiths named Demetrius stirred up a riot against Paul. Each of the verses that I'm about to state contains the Greek word ecclesia. Nowhere do we find the word translated as church. In each case, the word is translated assembly. Verse 32 of Acts 19. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And the vast majority did not know what cause they had come together. In verse 39, we read, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. In verse 41. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. From the context, we can see that in Acts 19, verses 32 and 41, crowd or mob 
would serve as a better translation of Ecclesia. In verse 39, court would be a better translation. Therefore, while Ecclesia is usually translated church in the New Testament, it need not be. The basic sense of Ecclesia is an assembled group. The church, the body of Christ, was a new creation, a secret in the Greek, Mustairon. God revealed this secret to Paul. As such, it did not exist before Paul. We see this in Ephesians 3.3, 3, Colossians 1, verses 26 through 27, and Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the body of Christ. He declared it was a secret God had revealed to him alone. Paul wrote this, and I want to read it here in Ephesians chapter 3, the first 10 verses. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed ye have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which it was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the secret, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The, we could say, unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration or dispensation of the mystery which for eons has been hidden in God who created all things. Paul wrote the Ephesians that by revelation the secret was revealed to him and that this secret was unknown to other generations and sons of men in verse 5. What was this secret? It was that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, according to verse 6. What body did Paul mean? Well, he meant the body of Christ, and we see that from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. One might be tempted to conclude that when Paul wrote, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets that God had revealed this secret to the other apostles, the twelve. Reading further into this passage reveals this was not the case. Paul had declared this secret was to him in verses 2 and 3, and that God gave him the grace to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable or unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration or dispensation of the secret which for eons has been hidden in God, according to verses 7 through 9. The twelve apostles learned about the secret of the body of Christ through Paul. No biblical evidence exists to support the view that they knew of it before Paul. The doctrine of the body of Christ is unique to Paul. No other biblical writer mentions it. The passages in Acts, which recorded the events surrounding Pentecost, provide evidence the twelve knew nothing of the body of Christ. God did not reveal this secret to them. Consider Paul's words to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, we read this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, 
and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the secret, which has been hidden from the past eons and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this secret among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the expectation of glory. Note carefully Paul's words. Paul wrote, of this church I was made a minister, in verse 25. Which church did Paul mean? Did he mean the Jewish church to which the twelve had been ministering? No, he meant the body of Christ. Notice the personal pronoun, I. Were Peter and the other eleven apostles ministers of the body of Christ? They were not if we accept what Paul wrote. This was a ministry the Ascended Lord gave to Paul, not the Twelve. More evidence of this fact is in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verses 6 through 9, the following. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. Paul met with the twelve, and declared his gospel to them, according to Galatians 2.2. He revealed God had commissioned him as the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans 11.13 and Ephesians 3.1, and that his gospel was the gospel of the grace of God, according to Acts 20.24. The Lord did not appoint the twelve as ministers to the Gentiles, and he had not been ministering to the Gentiles. All you need to do is read Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, and Acts eleven nineteen. They were apostles to Israel, according to Matthew 19, 28. No scripture indicates the twelve ever had a ministry to the Gentiles. They did not preach the gospel of the grace of God. They preached the gospel of the kingdom. In their meeting with Paul, the twelve officially recognized and set his policy that Paul would go to the Gentiles and that they would go to the Jews. It is helpful to pause and consider when this occurred. Paul was probably converted about 37 AD. He spent three years in the desert in Arabia, and in about 50 to 51 AD, the council in Jerusalem met in Acts 15. At some point, Paul wrote Galatians, perhaps maybe around 54 AD. Therefore, a considerable amount of time had passed when Paul met with the leaders of the Twelve. During this time, the Twelve had never evangelized Gentiles, with the exception of Peter's ministry with Cornelius in Acts 10. And this he only did after literally arguing with the Lord. The reason they had not done so was because they were operating under a different program. 
they were still operating under the instructions the Lord had given them earlier. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 7, we read these instructions. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The twelve ministered to Israel and preached the gospel of the kingdom. They knew Israel must repent for that kingdom to come, and that it would be in this kingdom that Gentiles could be blessed according to prophecy. They knew nothing about the body of Christ, even after Pentecost. Outside of Peter's going to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, no scripture supports the view that the 12 apostles ever had a ministry to Gentiles. Luke's account of Peter's visit to Cornelius reveals Peter did not initiate the visit and that the 12 apostles were outraged when they learned he had gone to a Gentile's house. Only when Peter recounted the entire story of how he came to go to Cornelius's house were they silenced. But even after Peter's defense, before his fellow apostles, we read in Acts 11, 19, the following. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Could words be any more clear? Pentecost was a Jewish feast day, which occurred 50 days after Passover. It was the time that Jesus told his disciples to await and remain in Jerusalem to receive the Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit was a key component of God's prophetic program to Israel, according to Isaiah 44.3 and Isaiah 59.21. It was not the birth to the church, the body of Christ, for nothing in the Old Testament spoke of the body of Christ. Rather, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was an essential part of the fulfillment of the new covenant which Jesus initiated at the Last Supper. It was a forerunner of events that would occur later on. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through 28. God had promised through his prophets that he would make a new covenant with them from the older Mosaic covenant. Jeremiah had written some things about that in Jeremiah 31, 33, and Ezekiel chapter 16 and chapter 37. Jesus, Jesus mentioned some things about this at the Last Supper. During the three years prior to the Last Supper, he preached that the kingdom of heaven was near. His death and resurrection fulfilled all that was required to atone for sin. He had risen from the dead. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and Jewish believers were baptized. Now, it's key to note that we could say that Christ was baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. Israel was at the threshold of achieving all that the prophets have foretold. Only thing, there was only one thing that was required, and that was that the nation had to repent, according to Acts 2.38 and Acts 3.19. If they would, God would establish his kingdom on the earth in accordance with Matthew 6 verses 9 through 10. In fact, that's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth. Yes, they were looking for the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. Peter and the apostles understood the great prophetic plan was unfolding according to the scriptures. The great hope of the prophets was the kingdom of God on 
earth. Jesus had preached that this kingdom was near for three years. The disciples understood this clearly. The last question they asked Jesus before he ascended was about the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, they asked, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And why not? Jesus had promised they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in this kingdom, according to Matthew 19.28 and Luke 22.30. Would not you have done this same? Who was Peter's audience at Pentecost? Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. The nation of Israel had assembled for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them as John and Jesus had both prophesied. The result was that they spoke in unlearned foreign languages. What also happened? They received power, as Jesus had told them in Acts 1.8. What was this power? They were able to perform the same kind of miracles Jesus had performed in his earthly ministry to authenticate his messiahship. These miraculous powers confirmed their ongoing divine message and programmed that Jesus was, was the prophesied Messiah and that the kingdom was near if the nation would only repent. What was Peter's message to the Jews? In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, he states, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. He told the Jews that if they would repent, God would send the times of refreshing. What was the times of refreshing? It was nothing other than a prophetic and covenanted promise of the kingdom of peace on earth. This was the first clear offer of the establishment of the kingdom of heaven to Israel. Prior to this time, the kingdom had been near. This message was still all Jew. No Gentiles were in view. Therefore, therefore, it makes no sense for the church, the body of Christ, to have begun at Pentecost when Peter continued to preach the prophesied kingdom of God to Jews only following Pentecost. Had Israel repented and accepted Jesus as the Messiah? the apostles would have begun to make disciples of all the nations in accordance with Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Gentiles would have found salvation and blessing through Israel in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the other prophetic scriptures. This was the whole point behind the Great Commission. Israel refused to repent, however. And because they refused to repent, the plan and will of God would have to be put on hold. One day Israel will repent. One day the prophesied kingdom, the prophets, and John, and Jesus proclaimed, will be established. But for now, in this present time, according to the Apostle Paul, Israel's transgression has resulted in placing Gentiles into the place of blessing, according to Romans 11, verses 11 and 12, and has brought reconciliation or conciliation to the whole world, according to Romans 11, 15. Had Israel obeyed God, the Gentiles would have been blessed through the success of Israel. But in grace, Gentiles are blessed due to the failure of Israel. Men fail, but God is gracious. Our God is indeed awesome. Removal of Jew, Jewish and Gentile distinctions 
that characterized the Jewish program clearly did not occur at Pentecost. Peter addressed only Jews in Acts, men of Judea in Acts 2.14, men of Israel in Acts 2.22, brethren in Acts 2.29, all the house of Israel in Acts 2.36, men of Israel in Acts 3.12, brethren in Acts 3.17, you who are the sons of the prophets in the covenants which God made with your fathers in Acts 3.25. We have no hint that Gentiles were included in Peter's message. The apostolic focus continued to be the prophetic program. In other words, repentance and preaching the kingdom of heaven that had begun under John the baptizer and Jesus. All of the attention of the Gospels in the first half of the book of Acts, including Pentecost, is upon Jews. Gentiles are hardly in view. Matthew 18 provides a good example of how the word ecclesia should be interpreted prior to Paul. Jesus said, if your brother's sin, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That was Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. In this passage, Jesus instructed his disciples on how to deal with a sinning brother. He enumerated a series of procedural steps to follow. One of these restorative steps for the sinning brother who continued to be, to be in a state of sinning and unrepentant was to take the problem to the church. If the sinning brother refused to listen to the church, then he was to be regarded as a Gentile and a tax collector. This statement only makes sense in a Jewish context. It makes no sense whatever in the existing body of Christ. Jesus clearly maintained the distinction between Jew and Gentile in Matthew 18. Such a distinction is now over. How do we know? Paul revealed that the church is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, and that they are equal in Christ. Some may be troubled by the fact that Jesus made a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and that under his teaching, the Jew had priority. This priority had been God's plan ever since God chose Abraham from among the Gentiles to be the father of a new of a new group of people through whom he would reveal himself and establish covenants. By means of this calling, God chose to reveal himself through the Jewish people to the Gentiles. When Jesus came, he preached repentance to Israel and presented himself to the nation as her Messiah. Establishment of his kingdom was contingent upon Israel's repentance and acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. Failure to recognize the nature of Jesus' mission has led to serious interpretive errors. Errors which unfortunately has allowed the vast majority of Christendom to deviate from God's biblical standard. Tragically, many people have been taught that Jesus came to found the church, the body of Christ. Even a cursory reading of the Gospels reveals how false this traditional view is. Jesus did not come to found the church, the body of Christ. He came to present himself to Israel 
as their Messiah King. Just look at Romans 15.8. His message to the nation was one of repentance because the kingdom of heaven was near. Or in other words, the king was present. Repentance was the basis on which the messianic kingdom prophesied by the Jewish prophets for hundreds and thousands of years was to be established. God's prophetic program was Jew first. Once the Jewish nation repented and accepted Jesus as their king, God would establish his earthly kingdom. Israel would then fulfill its destiny as the source of blessing to the Gentiles. A couple of verses quickly prove this. Just look up Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, Luke chapter 2, and verse 32. Because of this prophetic plan, Jesus ordered his disciples not let me repeat this. Jesus ordered his disciples not to go to the Gentiles. We see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Jesus rarely interacted with Gentiles. One exception was the Roman centurion, and Matthew recorded this account in his gospel in chapter 8. Another was the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Jesus told this woman when she confronted him, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Could words be any more clear than that? If Jesus commanded his disciples not to go to Gentiles, he could not have been forming the church, the body of Christ, in which Jew and Gentile are equal. Jesus made an exception with the Canaanite woman. He yielded to her plea to heal her demon-possessed daughter because in the midst of an unbelieving and obstinate Israel, a Gentile woman responded in faith to Jesus. She followed the pattern of Jacob, who refused to turn loose of the God-man he wrestled at Peniel until he was blessed, and Ruth, who refused to turn loose of Naomi. Even though the woman wasn't Jewish, even though she didn't fit into Jesus's immediate mission, Jesus made an exception to the divine plan of Jew first and responded to her because of her great faith. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. That's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. As late as Acts chapter 10, long after Pentecost, Peter and the apostles had gone to no Gentiles. In Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision and a specific command to go to the Gentile Cornelius's house. Peter obeyed, but not joyfully. Luke records in Acts chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, the following. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately, the object was taken up into the heaven. And then in verses 27 through 28, we read, As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. How did Peter's fellow apostles respond to Peter's action? Did they say, wonderful, way to go, Pete? God has sent you to preach to Gentiles the, the gospel. 
hardly. Read what Luke records in Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Notice, they took issue with him. In their view, Peter had abandoned the divine program. Only after Peter related the entire episode did his fellow Jews quiet down and accept him. Peter concluded all this in Acts 11, verses 17 through 18, with the following words. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Jesus proclaimed the prophetic plan of God. This plan had been manifested and prophesied throughout the Old Testament by the prophets. God further revealed the plan through his covenants with Israel. But God also had a musteron, or secret, a secret plan, unknown and unrevealed until he disclosed it to the Apostle Paul. God revealed his secret plan following Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, where we read, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this secret, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, but his earthly ministry was to Israel, not the church, the body of Christ. Paul is the founder of the church, the body of Christ, because God revealed this new administration through him. The Lord Jesus, as the foundation of the church, the body of Christ, is its head and Lord, not its king. And this relationship is celestial, not earthly. We have noted that the baptism of the Spirit occurred at Pentecost. But again, we also noted that this was Jesus Christ baptizing them with the Spirit. Was this the same baptism that Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? According to what Paul wrote, the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is the baptizer of the church, placing it into Christ. Notice the words of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now I want you to understand here that this is a total reversal of what Pentecost was. In Pentecost, they were baptized with the Spirit by Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, they are baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed into Christ. A different baptizer, 
a different element. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead who baptizes us into Christ as the body of Christ. In the Jewish program for the Jewish church, present at Pentecost, Jesus is the baptizing agent. However, he is the baptizer of Israel. You see that in Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, Acts 1 verses 4 and 5, and Acts 11 verses 15 and 16. John the Baptist prophesied saying in Matthew 3.11 the following, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. According to John the Baptist's testimony, Jesus was the one who was the baptizer of believers at Pentecost. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit before his crucifixion, according to John 14, verses 16 and 17, and verses 25 through 26. In John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, and John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. After Christ's resurrection, he told his disciples in Acts 1 5 the following For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Peter's message in Acts was a message of repentance. His message echoed the message of John the Baptist, Jesus and the Twelve, except that it followed Jesus' resurrection. Peter did not preach the death of Christ as a glorious victory over sin, but he preached it as a, as a cause of condemnation for Israel. As for Christ's resurrection, it offered the nation a renewed opportunity to accept their king and bring forth the promised kingdom. Not until Paul was Christ's death and resurrection preached as good news and the message of conciliation declared according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. For Peter, the kingdom of God proclaimed throughout the Gospels was still the plan of God. He called upon the nation to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2.38. And I want to note here that this water baptism in Acts 2.38 was for the forgiveness of sins. It was not for a testimony. Paul's message was believe and be saved, not repent and be baptized for salvation. Paul's gospel is the message for the church, the body of Christ, today. Notice also in Acts chapter 2 that the believers in Jerusalem sold their possessions and held them in common. Such was the character of the Jewish church. Jesus required this for citizens of the kingdom of God, according to Matthew 19.21, Mark 10, verse 21, Luke 12, verse 33, Acts 18, verse 22. The disciples, obedient to Jesus, left everything to follow him, according to Matthew 19, verse 27, Mark 10, verse 28, Luke 5, verse 11, and 28. How many messages and sermons have you heard a preacher tell his congregation to sell their possessions and give the money to the church? Paul never told believers to leave everything or to sell their possessions and to give them to the church, the body of Christ. A new and different order began with Paul, the church, the body of Christ. And in fact, we can see this distinction. Just read the very end of Acts chapter 10 and the very beginning of Acts chapter 5 to see this in, pro in progress. The church is composed of all believers who have put their trust for salvation into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4 states the gospel 
in this present administration of the grace of God. We are saved. We are saved because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our gospel is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Unlike Israel, the church, the body of Christ, is not under a covenantal relationship with God. Prior to the calling of Abraham, God made a covenant with mankind through Noah, in which he promised never again to destroy the world with a flood. After God created the Hebrew ethnicity, he made covenants with them. But God never made a covenant with the church, the body of Christ. God's relationship to the church is grace alone, and it is not under the law of Moses. The church does, however, receive blessings based off of promises that God has made. But a promise is not a covenant. The church is separate and distinct from Israel. I want you, if you have a sheet of paper, to make two columns. In the first column, write Israel as the header. And in the second column, write the church, the body of Christ. Here's some distinctions. Israel was established by and under covenants. The church is established by grace alone. It was a secret. Israel has God's earthly promises. The church, the body of Christ, has celestial promises. Israel operates under the law of Moses. Or, later on, the law of the new covenant. The church, the body of Christ, operates under grace. Israel is a kingdom. The church, the body of Christ, is a body, a living, breathing organism. Israel has Christ as its king. The church, the body of Christ, has Christ as its head. Israel was established by a covenant with, that God made with Abraham, who became the father of the Jewish ethnic or ethnicity. Subsequent covenants followed and built upon this covenant. The church is the body of Christ. The church is a, was a creation that would, was held in secret in the mind of God until God revealed the secret to the Apostle Paul, according to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, and Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 10, and Colossians 1, verses 26 through 27. Both Israel and the church, the body of Christ, are beneficiaries in God's plan, his overall far-reaching plan. God is sovereign, and he made, and God the Father and God the Son in the eons past made a plan to redeem fallen mankind solving the problem of sin and bringing glory to God. The church, the body of Christ's domain and destiny is celestial, according to Philippians 3.20. Israel's promised realm is the earth, according to Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. God promised Israel an earthly kingdom in Acts 1 6. The church, the body of Christ, has no earthly kingdom. The operative means of life for the church is grace. In Romans 6 12. Throughout most of its history, the nation of Israel operated under the law of Moses, and Jesus operated 
under that very same law. Matthew 8, 4. During his earthly ministry, in a future day, under the new covenant, Israel will have the law written on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. The church, the body of Christ, labors under no such pretense. In fact, Romans tells us you are not under the law, but under grace. Israel is described as a kingdom. Jesus is the head to the body of Christ. He is never called the king of the body of Christ. Jesus is the king of Israel. Ironically, the Roman governor, Pilate, a Gentile, recognized Jesus' Jewish kingship, even though the Jews rejected his title. In the Messianic kingdom, Jesus will rule as Israel's king in his role as David's greater son. In this role, he will fulfill the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, Sabbatic, and New Covenants. God established the church, the body of Christ, with the conversion and commission of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. It has the following characteristics. The church is the body of Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, and Colossians 1, 24. All who put their trust in Christ in this dispensation or administration are members of the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13. Membership into the body of Christ is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which places you into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And Galatians 3.27. One is baptized by the Holy Spirit when one exercises faith in Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. And I need to note that this baptism is not with water. Ephesians 4, verse 5. Members of Christ's body, the church, are indwelt by Christ. Colossians 1.27. In order to understand what church means, one must make a scriptural distinction and understands where one falls in God's plan. A church, an ecclesia, in the broad sense of an assembly of those who have put their trust in Yahweh or Jesus, in Jesus' day, the church or assembly was composed of those who repented and were baptized and believed that he was the promised Messiah. This was the requirement to be a citizen of the Messianic kingdom. But after Paul, God created a new entity, the church, the body of Christ, in which no distinction exists between Jew and Gentile. This was a secret God revealed to Paul alone. Paul was commissioned is the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans 11.13, who revealed this new church, the body of Christ. They are not the same. They are different. They have different destinies. They have different promises. And they have different hopes. If you'd like to get further information about this topic, feel free to visit us at our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. God bless and good day. Thank you for listening to Differing Things with our host, Dr. William Petrie. We hope you will join us again for another broadcast of Differing Things.